Okay, we'll start um, this second panel. Welcome to newcomers who have just joined us. Please don't feel you have to stand at the back. There are some seats right here at the front if you'd like to take them. And um, perhaps those of you at the back can tell people they're welcome to come and take a seat at the front. Um, we'll take their names and fine them for being late, of course, but that's fine. Um, so we're now moving to the second um, panel discussion. And it's a great pleasure to introduce um, the three new panelists. John Broom, Professor John Broom on my right is currently the White's Professor of Moral Philosophy um, at Oxford, based at Corpus Christi. He's hidden very well the fact underneath this title of Professor of Philosophy, the fact that he actually has a PhD in economics from MIT. He, he's hidden that well from me, certainly. Um, his pioneering book um, books include Weighing Goods and Ethics Out of Economics. Um, and he's going to start our debate this afternoon. And he is followed by Professor Stefan Durkon on my left, who's a professor of development economics. He applies microeconomics and statistics to problems of development. And he's currently involved in particular in longitudinal surveys of rural households in Ethiopia, Tanzania, and India, and on children in Ethiopia, India, Peru, and Vietnam. Stefan heads up Oxford's collaborative research, including with Southern partners, into institutions for pro-poor growth, and has spent time teaching at the University of Addis Ababa, as well as in other places in field. And then finally, certainly last but not least, James Purnell, whose path to Parliament went via the Institute of Public Policy Research, Journalism, Number 10 Downing Street, and he's now involved with Demos on their project on political empowerment. He's known to many as the youngest member of Gordon Brown's 2007 cabinet. Ministers variously said about him then that he was one of the few ministers, sorry, civil servants said about him that he was one of the few ministers they'd worked in that got to grips with his brief, no matter how difficult. And as Minister for Work and Pensions, it's James that's be ahead of the new welfare reform bill, which is being considered by Parliament, which aims to end poverty and to sure, ensure people reach their full potential through employment. Needless to say, on today's panel, he's our activist. And, um, but we're going to start with our philosopher, John Broom. Thank you very much, Nari. Uh, I feel that I'm actually left over from the previous panel because I'm going to be talking principally about economics, the discipline, rather than about uh, economic systems. Though I believe I am the person who was billed as going to speak about climate change and justice. So that, that will come into what I'm going to say. Um, also, the questions that were asked at the, uh, at the last panel made me realize I'd better say something before I start on what I had planned to say. The, the questions were about how can economics um, be connected with ethics. Now, I, 
agree entirely with what Amartya said. That the, there is no question about that. Economics is founded uh, on ethics. In fact, practical economics is really simply applied ethics. It's ethics applied to the economy. And I don't want you to think that what I say is in any way questioning that. The real question is how some economists have recently managed to persuade themselves that ethics can be taken out of economics. Uh, of course, that's, that's false. So I'm taking that for granted, but I am making a point within it, as you might say. Please don't uh, misunderstand the conclusion that I'm going to arrive at. Right at the beginning of the idea of justice, Amartya points out that this idea of justice has a very deep and strong intuitive appeal. Even young children are influenced by it. And it's only later in our development that we come to recognize that we have other moral duties as well, including particularly the duty to make things better and not to make things worse in the world. We really do have that duty of beneficence, uh, it might be called. But I'm sure, as Amartya says, that the duty of justice makes a much more immediate and intuitive appeal to people. And for that reason, when people have a moral argument to make, they often make it in terms of justice. That way, they hope to be more effective in what they say. If you want to get somebody to act uh, as she ought, it's often more effective to say that she'll be acting unjustly if she doesn't do it than it is to say merely that things will be worse if she doesn't do it. So it's natural to put moral arguments in terms of justice, but your argument will not be more effective if you do that if it isn't convincing. That's to say if it cannot really be convincingly framed in terms uh, of justice. And I'm going to use as an example of that, I'm going to take the utilitarian philosopher William Godwin. I, I chose him because when I wrote a paper about Godwin nearly 40 years ago, uh, Amartya was extremely generous in what he said about it. Um, also, I may say, Amartya, in the idea of justice, regularly quotes Godwin's wife, Mary Wollstonecraft, but Godwin, Godwin himself didn't get a look in, so I thought I'd address the balance uh, a bit. I'll use an example that does come from um, Amartya's book. So suppose I've created for myself a fine flute. I'm a good fl flute maker. But suppose that you are a better flautist uh, than I am so that if you had the flute, rather than me, you would bring more pleasure to the people around about us than I would bring by possessing this flute. Now, according to William Godwin, the fact that you will do more good by having it gives you a right to the flute. And indeed, he thinks, I would be acting unjustly if I held onto it myself and didn't give it to you. Now, that, I think, is absolutely implausible. Since I built this flute, and I built it for me, there can't be any duty of justice to give it to you. Godwin would have done much better to say, merely, that it would be better if I gave it to you, because more good would be done by doing it. Now, climate change. <laughs> <laughs> 
we ought to do something about climate change. We ought to act uh, in order to limit it. But I do not think that the reason why we ought to do something about it is a reason of justice, or not primarily a reason of justice. To be sure, there certainly are considerations of justice um, involved. And to the extent that our present emissions of greenhouse gases are already harming people, already harming living people who are in the world at the moment, we are doing those people an injustice. And that gives us a reason to uh, do what we can to reduce it. But by far the most important reason why we ought to limit climate change is that climate change will damage the quality of life of people who will be living in the future, not of current people, but future people. That's a much more significant reason, just because much more of the harm that climate change does will come to future people rather than present people. And it's doubtful that this damage that our emissions are doing to the quality of future lives constitutes an injustice to future generations. There are several reasons why we should doubt that, and unfortunately I've only got time to mention one of them. Maybe the others will come up in the discussion. But there's a fairly obvious reason, and that is that we are actually doing quite a lot for future generations. We are adding to the stock of many important resources, which those future generations could use to improve the quality of their lives. For instance, we are adding vastly to the stock of human knowledge, which is an enormous resource. And we're also adding to material stocks, uh, too. Uh, we're adding works of art, um, buildings, and at the other extreme, we're adding economic infrastructure. We are indeed seriously damaging the environment that the future generations will have to live with. But even so, despite that, it is possible, quite likely even, that future people will be better off on balance than we are because the damage we do them may be more than compensated by the good things that uh, we bring them. And if that's so, it's not at all easy to claim that our emissions constitute an injustice that's being done to them. But nevertheless, even if future people will be better off than us, even so, we ought to reduce our emissions for their sake. And that's for the reason that doing so will make the world a better place. And that's the case made by, for example, Nicholas Stern in the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change. The case that he makes for doing something about climate change is a case founded on the great benefit that we can achieve by making comparatively more smaller sacrifices in the moment. It's not a case founded on justice, it's a case founded on goodness, the good that can be done, the, the overall increase in good that can be brought to the world by limiting our emissions of uh, climate change. And I think that's the right case to make about climate change rather than a case founded on justice. So my conclusion is that if we're going to reform uh, economics, <coughs> we shouldn't inform it, reform it entirely around the idea of justice. Matters of good must also have a central place. 
And they actually will fit in reasonably well to the way that economists already think, because economists think rather naturally in terms of harms and benefits. Stefan Dirkon. Okay, thank you. Well, um, it, is, um, it is a great pleasure to, to be able to talk here at this event, um, not least because I can honestly say that I'm doing what I'm doing, now largely because of Professor Sen. Um, let me be clear that um, I came to Oxford about 20 years ago, a little bit more than that, with the explicit intention to study under Professor Sen here. Um, I was an economist and I'd taken some philosophy courses in Belgium and I'd just fallen for the analysis in poverty and famines and I took a keen interest in Bangladesh and the entitlement approach and so on. So I must say it came then at the time a little bit as a shock for me that uh, within a few weeks of arriving here, uh, in my one and only meeting since today in Oxford with Professor Sen, is that he told me that he was very happy that I wanted to work with him on themes that he was interested in except there was only one small problem, namely that he was leaving Oxford. So um, the result for me was a rather dramatic career change, and so in that sense, I definitely do what I'm doing now because of you. So I'm now rather content, <laughs> and rather content and rather neoclassical development economist employing statistical tools to problems of Africa, and especially in Ethiopia. So indeed, quite a distance from, from where uh, I came from. Um, so I clearly would have been something different, and it's a, it's a harder question, something I'm now not equipped to think about, whether I would be happier or more successful doing this. But um, it's, uh, it's, again, gives me a chance to say thank you to you uh, for allowing me to do what I'm doing now. But um, I'm only <laughs> partly sincere in this respect, because anything we do as a development economist, of course, touches very closely on some of the ideas um, um, that Professor Sen has worked all along on. Basically, for me, this is thinking about policies and solutions to tackle poverty and deprivation on some of the more deprived countries in the world. And so the brief comments in the time that remain will touch on some of these issues. And basically, one of the common themes in Professor Sen's work is, and indeed was alluded to already today a few times, is, uh, is, is this need to bring ethics into economics. I think... Um, and when, when uh, confronted by issues to, to do with deep poverty, we always are clearly forced to do this. Okay? So the idea of justice and, and much of Professor Sen's earlier work uh, give us plenty of opportunities to, to clarify this, and I would say largely in the way I always like to think about it, purify our thought and our thinking with relevance for these contexts. Okay? And so one of the things I actually want to end up today is actually saying, well, maybe it's not the case to bring ethics into economics, but maybe we'll bring, have to bring a bit of economics also into ethics. So one of my earliest encounters with philosophy um, was a course on Wittgenstein. And I liked rather the idea of, of two Wittgensteins, you know, number one and number two. And, um, and I must say I never thought there was anything like a sen number one or a sen number two in that respect. This was really until a few years ago I joined a multidisciplinary department here in Oxford, Queen Elizabeth House, and I began to realize that there's not just two cents, but there's about 50 different cents, everybody claiming some cent for themselves, often in debates amongst each other. 
Um, for example, there seems to be a sense claimed by sociologists, definitely one by social policy, lots of them claimed by NGOs, many of them that dislike the market, and there's definitely at least one sense that dislikes economists, apparently. Um, it appears that the global appeal of, this th of, of, of uh, Professor Sen's thoughts has had a few unfortunate results. And I want to actually point to one where I think there may have been an unfortunate, unfortunate event in that respect. And this is, I want to talk briefly about one case of probably mistaken attribution, which is the Millennium Development Goals. The UN Millennium Declaration called for a new commitment to development and poverty eradication across the world, and the shared ambition uh, was reflected in something called the Millennium Development Goals that were adopted in 2000, as people tend to like to say, by hundreds of, or definitely well over 100 governments, in the form of concrete targets, and they include things like very honorable targets, such as trying to halve world poverty and hunger by 2015, reaching universal primary education, reducing under five and maternal mortality by the same date, and also things like gender equality. And I, I'm aware that uh, Professor Sen has expressed his support to this initiative, but with, with qualifications and caution. And indeed, um, you know, well, for example, I've heard you saying at some point that the list forgot a few things, and things like human rights, democracy, open media, and indeed an emphasis on liberty. And indeed, it's quite important, and that's why I want to say, you know, this may be a case here of, of, of mistaken attribution. Nevertheless, I invite you, and I did it actually just before coming here again, quickly type in the web Millennium Development Goals and SEN, and a lot of people will actually say this is really exactly as uh, Professor Sen said. For example, I quote from one blogger from a development perspective, it can easily be argued that the adoption of the MDGs by the world community reflected an emerging consensus that development can be seen as a process of extending real freedoms that people enjoy, as eloquently explained by Professor Sen in Development as Freedom. Okay, so and now one rarely meets anyone that would argue MDGs are a bad thing. Okay? And I don't think I will dare to do that. Um, maybe, um, even less so, you will uh, get people to argue that the world would be a worse place unless maybe you live in the south of uh, the southern US somewhere in some bizarre community that believes it's all conspiracy theories. What I do want to argue, though, is the fact that we got somehow slightly lazy ethics into issues to do with development may well have misled the generation of policymakers and their populations. In that, indeed, my more general point is, is that when we're looking for practical normative principles, we better immediately start thinking carefully about how to reach them, as otherwise they're not just elusive and irrelevant, they may actually do damage to people and their ability to achieve a better life. A few months ago, I contributed to a paper with a large team left, led by Professor Bourguignon that reviewed the idea and the future of the MDGs for the European Union. Okay? One of the interesting findings was that despite the fact that all these governments across the world were sharing these objectives of these lots of different MDGs, um, our finding was that when we looked carefully, that virtually no country in the world, the, attainment degree, the degree of attainment was correlated with each other in the period of the MDGs. That we didn't find, we find barely any correlation in any country uh, of, of, uh, of, um, in, in Africa on systematic improvement, and indeed, possibly with the exception of primary enrollment rates. So if I were to make a very simple statement on Africa, very little has happened, bits and pieces here, but maybe largely we've got lots more children enrolled in schools, or as they technically call them, bums on seats. 
um, which have been showing, um, so which, which basically means you know, a lot of these targets are, are reached, but I want to argue they've also resulted in a lot of kind of um, um, shaky thinking about you know, what is actually development in the end uh, about. Now, the standard argument in the UN and lots of well-meaning donor circles has been to emphasize that this is just a problem of aid. We haven't spent enough on these things. Okay? Um, a well-known professor from Columbia could make this extremely eloquently here and he could just defend this. It's just a matter of spending money. We can do this. It's not a big deal. However, it's a little bit more difficult. And indeed, if you start looking at these different targets, again, extremely well-intentioned and clear, clearly honorable targets. Many of them are extremely difficult to reach. Some of them are quite easy to reach. Um, many of them are inputs in other type of uh, attainments we need to do. Lots of them are basically um, quite complex processes that, where money is not just helping. For example, gender equality, I don't think it's just an issue of, of money. Um, issues to do with health. These are lots of intergenerational processes that, you know, a child's health now in this generation may well be dependent on a lot of other things as well. So clearly we need to have a more uh, careful thinking about it. It also doesn't quite explain the varied attainment. Okay? And one of the impressions I get working on Africa quite a lot is that we've had a lot of picking and choosing. Since we had a lot of targets, everybody could pick one and we could focus on them. We'll make some choices, and then if it suits us, well, we pick one, an easy one. Sometimes maybe someone else say, I'm going to go for the harder one. For example, if we don't think of the one that reached really the closest in terms of the target in Africa, is getting lots of children into school, you very quickly already see it's a very poor one. We don't say anything about the quality of the schooling. We also, and I think that's more importantly, we don't say anything about the kind of society they can enter into them into when they get a bit older. We're raising their hope and aspirations without actually offering them very much in terms of where they can go to. In short, if we get a lot of a simple list that seems to be nice, normative principle to achieve, let's say policy that looks at many of these things, but it lacks the vision of a kind of society we may want to reach, uh, then it actually may well do some harm. Of course, some will say we've been here. Some societies have been very successfully building up things like MDGs without necessarily getting the whole society sorted immediately. Kerala gets often quoted, Sri Lanka, bits depending on how you read China, you can also think a lot has been happening. However, and I want to, uh, and I'm sure I'm running out of time, so I will conclude quickly, briefly mention Tanzania. Tanzania is an African country I know quite well, and this is one that actually has a lot of lessons for the MDGs for the future. Because in 1979, I would probably say MDGs were reached in Tanzania, 1979. The only problem is they were absolutely unsustainable, very soon afterwards, a whole society collapsed, a whole economy collapsed, and the generation whose MDGs were reached was a totally lost generation in the 1980s and a big part of the 90s. Only about two years ago, the MDGs were, for education were reached again in Tanzania. And it took such a long time. Clearly, without having a clear sense of the nature of the, of the economy, the way this, the MDGs can be sustained in that society, it wasn't really helping. So to conclude, in a sense, we do need in Africa uh, lots of priorities and things we want to achieve. 
but a framework like the MDGs by something that seems to be shared by everybody without any clear sense on the, the weights that we attach to different things, the processes that we will need to achieve them, is actually uh, quite, quite, uh, quite dangerous. There's lots of trade-offs that we'll need to do, and this is something economists do as their bread and butter. Economics is about trade-offs. We could try to do the better health. Maybe we should maybe do the education first. These are very hard choices. I would probably argue that in some of these countries I know, for example, Ethiopia I know quite well, is that we've probably spent too much on education. We actually may have done better to spend it somewhere else. We need to think again on the process that can achieve these things sustainably, the growth and the instrumental uh, issues that are related to it. So, in short, what I would like to say is it's not just an issue of bringing economics, ethics uh, into economics, but maybe when we do our ethics, when we get our targets, our goals, maybe we should bring a little bit of economics back into ethics as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. James Pennell. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be on this uh, panel. It's a real, a real honour. I want to take up Angus's challenge from the, the previous session because I agree with his hypothesis that a time of economic crisis is an opportunity for a new ideological framework to come forward. Welfare capitalism grew out of the, uh, the Great Depression. Neoliberalism took its opportunity from stagflation in the 1970s. And being in the middle of an economic crisis, uh, it's not surprising that we don't know what the ideological framework is that will come out of it, but we should know we, that we have an opportunity to create a new ideological framework over the next few years. So I'm going to try the, the difficult task of saying in eight minutes what that ideological framework should be. First of all, I just want to say something about um, uh, politics, to speak up for the importance of politics, because politics has clearly taken a real kicking in the UK over the last year. And the reason that is a, a tragedy, in my view, is that a, a good politics and a functioning democracy is vital if we are to turn ideas into reality. The role of politics is to try and take the current of ideas and turn that into the light of policy, to be the conductor between academics and voters. And if politics loses its ability to do that, we lose our ability to achieve change. And I think that the capabilities approach which Professor Sen has outlined is potentially a very good starting point for that new ideological framework. And I hope that politicians can take it and turn it into, um, uh, into the answer to the uh, opportunity created by the economic crisis. But of course, the capabilities approach does have one disadvantage for politicians like me who trade in simple truths. And it's that it doesn't come with a, an easy prepackaged policy guideline in its very pluralist nature, it doesn't have the maximum theory of distribution, for example, that you could take from Rawls's theory. But politicians will be tempted to try and find a simple way of expressing the capabilities um, approach in practice. One place that people start is by talking about equalizing capabilities, and that's appealing to people on the center-left. But having thought about this, I think there is a real difficulty with the idea of equalizing capabilities in a sense, I don't know what it would mean in practice. And to illustrate that, um, one example that helps me is to think of, for example, what it would mean in the case of Stephen Hawking. We would clearly want to reduce the inequality that he suffers from because of his physical disability. 
but we wouldn't want to reduce the inequality that he benefits from because of, because of his intellectual ability. The very idea of equalizing capabilities seems to me to be a non-starter because I can't make sense of it. But I do think that there is another goal which might serve the purpose, and that would be trying to maximize capability. That would mean wanting each individual to be able to be free to choose from as wide a range of capabilities as possible, and having made that choice, to achieve the greatest possible functioning within those capabilities. If they decide to be a theoretical, theoretical physicist and they're good at it, they should get the support to develop that capability, for example. But the tough question for politicians, of course, is how much support? What should the priority be? Where should governments focus their efforts when they're thinking about capabilities? Well, I think, first of all, there are some core capabilities which are the first place that government should place its efforts. They're core capabilities without which people can't develop any of the other capabilities. They're the capabilities which Professor Sen has quite rightly said should have the same status as rights. So most obviously education and health, but each society will have a different range of capabilities which it would want to put into that core, and it would have a different level at which it would set the guarantee, and it would want that to be able to change over time. And that's where the role of democracy comes in, both democracy as discussion, but also democracy as decision in deciding what that core should be and allowing it to evolve over time. So that, would, for me, would be the first priority area, core capabilities. The second is that government should aim to eliminate the worst inequalities. Now, again, this is, it's important to note that this is an issue of prioritization. Not all inequalities are equal, if you like. There are some inequalities which are much more contested uh, than others. One example would be the, the importance of the gap between the middle and the top on which people will have different views. But I think that a society like ours can create a real consensus around the need and our ability to eliminate or at the very least severely reduce uh, certain key inequalities and I'd like to propose three. First of all, abolishing child poverty. It's clear that people can't develop their capabilities effectively if they grow up in, uh, in poverty relative to others in society. Secondly, remo removing what Joe Wolfe has described as corrosive disadvantage, the kinds of disadvantages which, which overlap and prevent you from developing your capabilities, such as drug abuse or unemployment. And thirdly, and I think this is very important, making sure that people whose skills in a global economy do not enable them to look after their family and have a decent wage if their wage is set purely by the market, uh, those people should be... Uh, guaranteed through both minimum wages and what uh, government does, a decent level of income so they can respect themselves, look after their families, and play a full part in society. So three key inequalities that government should aim to overcome, child poverty, um, and make sure people have a decent wage and corrosive disadvantages. And I would say the government should prioritize those over trying to reduce the Gini coefficient, for example, which I uh, worry can be as distorting as a narrow measure of GDP can be for economic growth overall. Third, government should protect people from the worst consequences of bad luck. As was being said in the previous panel, we should aim to reduce unnecessary suffering. And that means, I think, a new concept of protection, and a much bolder one, coming out of this economic crisis. Because I don't think that what people want if they lose their job is better benefits. What people want is a job. They want benefits initially, but they want to know that there will be a job for them after a certain period. And as Minsky has argued, I think the government should start to think about how they can become the government, the employers of last resort. Because whatever we do to minimize economic risk 
over the next few years, the danger of crisis of capitalism will remain there, and governments can play a role in guaranteeing that people will find work. And indeed, that's something which we are already starting to do in the United Kingdom today by guaranteeing that young people will find work within, uh, within a year of being unemployed. So for me, that's the first part of the story. The government should aim to empower people and to protect them. But it's not the end of the story. And I think it's very important that we recognize that if we want to have capable individuals, we also need a capable society. This is not the critique which is made of liberalism, that it is atomistic or nar narrowly individualistic. It's a point that if, in the hands of politicians who over-concentrate on individual capability, um, uh, there is a danger that we will forget about the importance of a strong society as well. Uh, I totally um, uh, accept and indeed um, argue that having powerful individuals is not contradictory to a strong society. Powerful individuals are more likely to take part in making their society work. But I do think that government has two roles in making sure that our society works effectively. First, the state cannot avoid deciding what capabilities matter. Of course, markets do do a good job at revealing the capabilities which society values and generating the resources to make it possible for people to develop those capabilities. So Nozick's example of Wilt Chamberlain today, maybe that would be a David Beckham example. But markets are not enough. Governments obviously need to stop people developing negative capabilities, such as air pollution or knife crime, but they have a positive role to play here too. They decide which capabilities should be supported, the ones that won't be supported by the market. They do have to adjudicate between poetry and pushpin. That's why we fund the BBC, it's why we fund political philosophy departments, or indeed community sports pitches, because they help individually, individuals to develop important capabilities. So second, governments also need to think about creating a more reciprocal or mutualist society. I'm grateful to Sabina for reminding me that in the idea of justice, Professor Sen stresses that capabilities are not just powers to do things for oneself. They are also the ability to do things for other people. And that insight suggests to me that thinking about how we create a more reciprocal society should be right at the heart of how we develop individual capabilities as well. That reciprocity should take two forms. First of all, expecting certain obligations in return for the support which will be necessary to make the vision that I've just spoken about possible. That vision will involve real redistribution. And for that to have popular support, I think taxpayers will need to see that people who receive that are carrying out obligations in return. And that thick concept of citizenship, I think, is the right answer to the concerns that people have about immigration, not wanting to reduce immigration instead. Having a thick concept of citizenship, I think, is the way that you reconcile solidarity and diversity. Secondly, and finally, governments should encourage non-state collective organizations. They should encourage the kind of mezzanine level of activity between the individual and the state, the kind of community and collective organizations where people come together, as in London citizens, but also through the uh, delivery of public services by community or other groups, the way that people come together to have a collective power to achieve uh, outcomes that they negotiate themselves. So that, in the few minutes that I had, is my answer to what capabilities could look like in practice from a centre-left point of view. It would guarantee core capabilities. It would eliminate the most unjust inequalities. It would protect people from unnecessary suffering. It would develop the capabilities that the market leaves out. It would require obligations in return for this support, and it would nurture a more reciprocal society. And having set out how I thought Professor Sen's 
approach might look to a politician in practice. I now look forward to the bit in Woody Allen's film Manhattan where the academic sits, uh, comes out of the uh, queue of people and says, but I've completely misunderstood his theory. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think there's been a wonderfully interesting uh, set of three comments and or three sets of comments, really. Um, and I wasn't, I'd forgotten the, um, that I had, I was so engrossed in the argument, I wasn't thinking what I ought to say about this <laughs> rather than taking notes. Um, when James Burnell was mentioning Manhattan, Woody Allen, I think there's, I think it's in that film there's a line, sorry, I was told that I'm not, I have to achieve more proximity to, is that better? Yep. Okay, yeah. Um, I think there's a line when, um, uh, I think Woody Allen tells this woman in the cab, and saying, oh gosh, you're so beautiful, I can't even keep my eyes on the meter. <laughs> and I think the arguments were so beautiful that I lost track of what I ought to do, mainly <laughs> how to, how to um, get to these issues. But let me uh, say this. Um, basically, I don't have disagreement with anyone here, but I do have some clarificatory questions and maybe some conditional disagreement. John would be very disappointed if I didn't disagree. <laughs> I think the last time we really disagreed as to what utility means, isn't that right, the term, I think. But the, um, I think John was accusing me that he used the term utility in a way nobody else in the world uses. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I didn't agree with him on that. But um, on the climate change thing, I basically agree that the, the uh, the strength of cases like that of Nick Stern, which I think is extremely strong, um, is really not one based on justice. It's based on, on that we can do a lot better for the world than, than you could capture within the limits of, of justice. Justice is one of the ideas, one of many ideas, that come in when it comes to deciding in practical reason what we ought to do. And I don't think we would get full delivery here. Now, my, my only hesitation is that maybe we disagree as to why it is in the, not in the justice territory. It's not the case that there are not claims of justice to be made here. I think, um, first of all, um, John pointed out that the future generation would be probably a lot richer so that the inequality-based argument may not work because they're a lot richer, so why should we sacrifice for them? Not absolutely certain about how people's sense of well-being goes over time. Partly, of course, you know, we tend to assume that whatever was established is a matter in some ways of expectation that we ought to get. So if you compare what your living standard is compared with what you might reasonably expect, um, it may not look, the utility calculus won't be simply a utility, a function of income, and, 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 and then look at it. I think you have a more complex thing where the expectations will come into the story. And I think we have uh, quite often seen people 
enjoying standard of living which is higher than that of people 300 years ago and still feeling very discontented because they expected a different kind of situation. So I think there could be an argument of justice based on that. There could be those who take the view that there is a matter of some kind of right to fresh air. Uh, there's an argument of the kind that it's a, whether or not you are religious and then of course you have the uh, you have access to such arguments that it's a God-given right, but even if you don't have these uh, arguments, they, there are strong arguments that can be made on the basis of human rights. Um, as it happens tomorrow, I have to uh, do a record a conversation with uh, Neil McGregor of the British Museum about uh, the series that he is doing, 50-part or 100-part series in the history of the world, and I'm supposed to talk with him about Ashoka and go to the British Museum in the afternoon and chat with him. And I was looking through the, again, the inscriptions that he had. And one of the really striking things, of course, of Ashoka is that he is using very strong moral argument without ever invoking the idea of God anywhere. So that that is simply not available to him because he was basically like Buddha, uh, Gautam Buddha, an agnostic. But he still saw very strongly the, the moral case for it. And I think one could make a moral case for, for a right to fresh air, which is not parasitic on one's theological belief about God. Now, what I'm, the reason why I ultimately come on the same side as John is that I don't think we will get sufficient agreement on any of these. I think there will be people who would like to still think of utility or, or well-being being a function of income, not expectations. At least they would give a strong argument in that direction. There will be people who would not accept the right. So, in so far as we are, are looking for partial agreement, I would argue that John is right because they will get much greater agreement on this being a better thing to do on that generic plane, even though the reason why it's better would differ. In some people's context, justice will play a part in the other people's context, it's not. That's the way I would go, rather than saying it's not a matter of justice at all. I think I personally would be on one of those minority sides, but I don't expect to win that argument in the sense to be able to convince uh, people, win the argument in the sense I might feel that I gave the better argument, but I would not be able to carry other people on that. And to the extent that public reasoning is very central, and it comes back, and I'll come, when I come to Jim Fernell's com comment, I think it's quite central. To, 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 to the issues that he was raising. Um, the uh, Stefan point, I, I'd forgot, I, I remember meeting, but I don't remember that I, uh, I was um, as oblique as saying that how wonderful you have come, I'm about to go. Uh, <laughs> but but um, 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 since I'm a great believer in dialectics, that since I had a negative impact on him, uh, I take seriously and positively. Um, the, I think my worry about the, the nature of the Millennium Development Goals, as you mentioned, that I have expressed concern, and I, I do, I think there are really three reasons for it. One is that purely as a matter of global politics, we were there just a year before the Millennium Development Goals came. There was the Millennium Declaration. And that was endorsed by the United Nations. It talked about human rights. It talked about democracy. And then it also talked about poverty, education, medical treatment, and so on. 
And then suddenly a subset of them got into the Millennium Development Goals, and then the suddenly you didn't see very much more rhetoric coming from the UN on the other issues. That, I think, was a, was a mistake. Now, I'm second to none in standing behind Jeff Sachs in his attempt to get the Millennium Development Goals fulfilled because they're extremely important. But I think the shooting of the human rights, uh, the shooting of the democracy and rights story was a mistake for two reasons. First of all, it's extraordinarily important for human life, even for very poor people. I think it's worth remembering that the only time, no, that's not the only time, isn't the right thing. The first time the Indian democracy showed some muscle was in the middle 70s when Mrs. Gandhi um, uh, tried to uh, change the, uh, adopt the constitutional provision for habeas corpus and human rights. And for a year, um, uh, that was under emergency. It was suspended. But then, of course, uh, and it's to her credit, that she went to election. Uh, the constitution mandated it, but we know from the history of the world that that doesn't prevent people from not going in that direction. She went to election and was resoundingly defeated. So here was one of the poorest population in the world First time showing its democratic uh, nerve in, in, in reversing an earlier vote she had, um, not on grounds of poverty, but on grounds of, of basically human rights and democratic freedom and habeas corpus. So I think, um, I think these are important to people, as John Stuart Mill knew, and I think we have reason to know that too, I think. But secondly, and, and Stefan agrees with that, so I'm not saying that we disagree, but I'm trying to explain, since he made that remark as to, I've, I'm, I've, written, I'm, I've been rather negative about it, that's the reason why I have been. Um, the other is that sometimes, quite aside from the, and the two different points, and one shouldn't be emerged, I don't think we justify democracy and human rights because it makes one's economic progress better. But on the other hand, it's, there is that connection. That's a separate point. I mean, if you think about what happened in Zimbabwe, uh, I keep every now and then letters from my former collaborator, Jean Dres, whether the time has come for us to do a joint book together again. We have done six already. Uh, and this is going to be a follow-up of the 2002 um, India book. And we decided that maybe next winter, 2010 winter, we might, uh, winter meaning um, December, that we might work on it. But eight, when uh, 89, our f uh, first of the collaborative book came out, Hunger and Public Action, one of the good boys in the story was Zimbabwe. It's a democracy, it has human rights, it had oppositional politics, and it did a lot of good things, including preventing famine, in the situation as we discussed over, over a, a large section of the book, well, section of the chapter of the book, as to how even in a most adver adverse food situation, it did dramatically better than non-democratic countries like Ethiopia and, 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 and Sahel countries were doing. The collapse in Zimbabwe began with the collapse of democracy and rights. Now, of course, they also have famines and a, a totally uh, denuded economic landscape, which is following the denuding of the political landscape. So that I think quite aside, and I do want to say it's aside, the first point is the important, intrinsic importance of the human rights and democratic rights. But secondly, it also had a functional way to play 
So I think the Millennium Development Goals would be easier to achieve if they were not constricted, if the Millennium Declaration's um, range of coverage had been minted. That's the nature of the point. So I'm glad that Stefan brought that up. I thought I would mention that. Now, in James's case, of course, I was particularly um, impressed by the arguments about how we might think about how to apply. To some extent, a lot of it has more contemporary ring here in Britain than in Europe, and I recognize that. And there I know far less than he does. Um, he looks even younger than I thought he might look. <laughs> but I have to nevertheless say that um, uh, um, uh, he knows a lot more about these things. So I, I won't try to second guess uh, him on that. I would, first of all, endorse him that equality of capability couldn't be a, a very um, adequate objective. I wouldn't take the view that it plays no part. If you find that uh, people's lives are denuded in one way but not in another, another, there is something to be judged about how overall taking everything into account how they are faring. So there are some kind of cases where that is important. And the kind of thing in which and it gives me an opportunity to recognize the good work that Sabine Alka and others are doing in OPI when they're doing capability, and they, they're also doing some things too. Well, I think the equality of capability would not be a completely absent consideration there. But it cannot take the room of many other considerations. He pointed out quite rightly about the that we might want one kind of equality when it comes to Stephen Hawking, but not another. But there's another, there's a, there's a rather brutal case, um, if you think about it, that the, there's, it took me when I was working on gender about 30 years ago, uh, it took me some time to get persuaded that the differences in mortality rate in between men and women really was biological. There were great doubts on that. I think in Ingrid Walden's paper, uh, showing that even in the fetuses, female fetuses survive better than male fetuses played a big part in that. Roughly about 108 to 109 male fetuses are conceived compared with 100, sorry, female, uh, male compared with 100 female. By the time it's born, it's about 105 um, male fe uh, birth compared with um, 100 um, uh, female birth. And then by the time a full life is led without any discrimination at this level, Britain and America and Germany does have gender discrimination, but not at the elementary level, which reflected in, 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 in morbidity and mortality. And in that case, you have to reverse it. It's about 105 or so females compared with 100 males in the total population. Now, how about making the capability to live long equal. And in any kind of aggregate capability, it's going to take a big part. The Human Development Index, as, as, um, as you would, the chair would know, is dominated by the life expectancy different. That different countries, differences are very much connected with that. But you could make the capabilities equal of men and women, but not giving women the same treatment as men for the same illnesses. Now, that's not usually seen as justice. It's usually seen as, as sexism. And there's a reason for it, because procedural fairness and procedural justice has a very important thing to be concerned with, if that is a very much a 
a central concern in Mills on Liberty. It is a central concern of anyone who is thinking about fairness in the contemporary world. And another way of looking at it, you would not be looking only at equality of capability. You would be looking at many other things of which equal treatment at a certain level. And it's even at a very elementary level, not even the sophistication that my friend Ronnie Dworkin would say, don't, don't, don't worry about equality of treatment, treatment as equal. Sometimes that distinction is important. But in this case, equality of treatment is really extremely important. So I think uh, uh, James is absolutely right on that. Um, I would emphasize the issue of um, capabilities even for uh, you mentioned unemployment, and, and I think that's, that's a very strong connection. For me, the connection came very strongly many years ago when I first looked at a work done by a Belgian economist, actually, called Schokert, Eric Schokert, uh, and where he did some survey uh, um, uh, work on Belgian unemployed. And one striking thing was that the complaint was not only about about the difficulty of getting means of good living, but not having any freedom in life. That whatever you have, you have to be lumped with. Oddly enough, in one of the many things that people miss out on Smith, Smith has a discussion on that in The Wealth of Nations when he's talking about poor laws, where he's at, when, when he supports the poor laws, unlike Malthus, but he doesn't say that the poor laws are fine. He said there are problems with it. And one of the problems is that you, it gives you right to support, provided you stay in the, in the county and don't go anywhere. Now, Smith is at its best in, in bringing out two considerations there. One is that it's very inefficient because people can't go and look for a job elsewhere. And the other is say that it is a very much a denial of freedom. You can get your food and shelter here, but you can't go and you hate where you are, but you can't go away because you don't have that freedom. So it's very much like Eric Schokert's finding about the Belgian unemployed at, at that time. I must stop there. So I, and I, my, only, my only point of difference, if there is a difference with James, would be that I wouldn't say what is the role of the market and what's the role of the state. Uh, I think th that's the way it will come through. But I think it's mainly the difference between our collective decisions going by market and collective go decisions going by public reasoning. And then if you think the state as democracy in the form of government by discussion, then I think that's where the connection would be. So the, the contrast, what I'm fighting for is not state against the market, but public reasoning and, and democracy against the market. Um, when we had this meeting in January earlier this year, and they're going to be another next year, with, I'm um, uh, oh, sorry, we're out of time, um, arranged by um, uh, um, uh, President Sarkozy and, uh, and, and, and Chancellor Markel and, and former Prime Minister um, uh, um, um, Tony Blair. Uh, uh, the point was forcefully made by some of us, well, I don't know whether I made it forcefully, but some others made it forcefully. I made it in a small way, the way I always take part in student agitation. When others say something, I said, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> so I express my agreement with that. Namely that um, markets have this element of variability. Only true 
the fact that there is a democracy around. Because you see, one of the peculiar things of the market, it will generate a lot of good results and generate a lot of bad results. And you have to tell between them, and there's no way in which you could give yourself up to the market forces. And it's not adequate here, I would argue, Jane, to say that the state will adjudicate. I think we have to adjudicate. That's where the role of democracy and public reasoning comes in. Thank you. I think I'm taking longer. Thank you. Just before we um, applaud this group of speakers, um, can I just say that we will now... I, I saw a number of you um, champing at the bit with Stefan's um, comments about the MDGs. Let me assure you that at least two of the next panelists, I'm sure, are going to address some of those issues and perhaps take some questions from you about them. Um, we're now going to stop for a 10-minute um, break to permit you a comfort break and so forth before coming back for a fantastic final panel. So can I, can I say that we will be back here and starting sharply at um, 3.38. Um, thank you.